What's up, y'all? Austin Winters here, and with me today is virtually my sister, in a way, Tristan Cox, uh, my best friend, Trey Cox's little sister. I've known Tristan for almost all my life now, and so like I always start, I want to run through a few of Tristan's unique fires. So Tristan went to the University of Texas at Austin. You were a major in international relations and history. You have minors in French, human rights, and social justice, so overachiever, Tris, as usual. Uh, you interned in Congress, which we both did. It's a shared experience. Both of us have. I, I assume yours was very different than mine. Uh, we can maybe get into that a little bit later. Yeah, for um, sure. You studied abroad in France. You got to learn about World War II in France, Germany, and Poland. Uh, you've worked for nonprofits, working on the homeless issue in Austin. Uh, you've done Jewish studies, which is interesting. So I'm, I'm guessing that's like a Holocaust lens or something. We could, we could talk about that a little later. Mm -hmm. uh, you're on the Texas equestrian team. You're currently enrolled in Vanderbilt Law School. You've clerked for the Texas Attorney General uh, for the Cold Case and Missing Persons Unit, which is super interesting. Um, you were going to study abroad in Venice. COVID kind of screwed you over on that. And you are expected this summer to law clerk for Goodwin and Proctor LLP in Boston. And you plan to start your career there. So Tristan, that's you. Welcome to Winter's World. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And for the wonderful introduction. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being on, Tristan. I've tried to get your brother to come on a number of times. He always says no. So I'm glad really? to have- Oh yeah, so I'm glad to Hardy have a, a Cox family member on here. Uh, but Tristan, so you're a history major. As we talked about a little before, I'm a huge history nut. I was the weird kid in the, the book fairs in school, picking up the black and white biographies and reading about history. I've always just been drawn to it. So what's, what's kind of your story with coming to history to major in that? And how do you think history shapes your view of what will happen in the future in our lifetimes? Sure. So I have always been really interested in history. It was one of my best subjects in K through 12. And then when I was entering undergrad, I actually went to the University of Texas with no major chosen. I decided to go and see what major I decided to do when I got there. So I picked up international relations pretty early. But then I got into a World War II program at the University of Texas called the Normandy Scholars Program. Um, and I was gaining so many history credits from those courses. And I, it kind of just sparked my love of history again. And so I decided to take up that major and spent my junior and senior year really diving into history courses and um, ran with it from there. Um, I think how it shapes my perception of the future, you hear the phrase all the time that history repeats itself. I had mm -hmm. a really wonderful professor that told me in undergrad that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it often rhymes, it which rhymes, I thought yes. was an interesting concept. Um, and yeah, I think it's interesting to trace back a lot of things that we're experiencing today or have experienced in recent decades um into things that have happened in the past that's cool i totally agree with that where it doesn't repeat itself but there are patterns that tend to happen in similar ways that we can learn from the past and hopefully apply to the future uh is there a specific part of history that you're interested in a specific geographic region a certain period in history uh where kind of does your interest lie sure so i suppose the obvious answer would kind of be world war ii because um i was hugely involved in that in undergrad and it's something that has always really interested me because in a sense 
it almost doesn't feel real. Like it really wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things. But when you hear stories about what happened and what people were experiencing and the workforce, it almost feels like some um, alternate reality that didn't actually happen. So I was always super interested in that side of history. Um, and the more I learn about it, the more interesting it becomes. And I realize that there's just so much more to dive into. Interesting. Yeah, I think World War II is kind of an interesting period to kind of hone in on because the modern world was kind of birthed out of World War II. So the U.S. became a central economic power. We had the, the Cold War follow shortly after. I, th I still think we're fighting cultural battles of the 50s in a way, if that makes any sense to you. Like there's kind of the, the collectivist versus the individualist views of the, the West and the East. Uh, how do you mm -hmm. see uh, World War II kind of shaping where we are today? Do you still think it has a lot, of, lot to do with the, the, so, the culture wars, I guess you'd call them? Sure, I think it's a really interesting question you pose. And I think um, the rise of American hegemony is certainly uh, birthed out of World War II. And I think it created this initial really interesting relationship with Russia and with European nations that um, kind of sprung off of World War I. And I think in a lot of ways, we're still seeing those effects today. And it seems like in some ways, the world is still mad at Germany. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I just think it's such an interesting time period and it seems to be woven into our, the fabric of our nation in the way that a lot of time periods are. I totally agree. And I think it's interesting that if you look at history, it seems like there are kind of reset periods. Like people talk about the arc and the cycles of history and it mm -hmm. feels like we've been above that horrible part of history for quite some time, for a, a, like an unusual amount of time. And now after the COVID pandemic, people are using the phrase, the great reset. And mm -hmm. you're kind of seeing legacy institutional failure across the board. I think crypto is challenging that economically. I think we see uh, podcasts, alternative media cha challenging the mainstream media. Um, do you think we're in the midst? I've heard it called the silent revolution. Do you think we're in the midst of another big shakeup where kind of World War II-esque, we're going to see something new come out of this? Do you think we're going to devolve into a worse situation? What's kind of your view on the present right now? Totally. I think we're absolutely going to evolve into something new. And I think um, in a lot of ways, we will never be the same post COVID-19. And I also think um, it's an interesting time in the rise of social media and specifically the way that Gen Z utilizes social media, TikTok being a huge thing that it is right now, things being able to go viral in the hands of um, average everyday people. Um, so I think we're certainly in a very interesting time period and it'll be interesting to see how government relations are being way stirred up and they have been for the past decade, but COVID has heightened that a lot. Um, economics, you're way more into crypto than I am. I <laughs> would love to hear you talk about it all the time, but, um, yeah, I think the way that, these next 10, 20 years unfold is going to be really fascinating and in a lot of ways unpredictable. Yeah. And I think that unpredictability can be scary, but I believe there's opportunity in that. Uh, and you touched on uh, social media, which I think is interesting. I, I consider myself Gen Z, like the end of the millennials, the beginning of okay. the Gen Z. Um, so that's where my head is at. 
social media, I probably started Facebook in seventh grade. So you're a couple of years younger than me. So you've been kind of more immersed in the social media swell kind of than I have. Do you see social media as a negative thing, as a positive thing, uh, potentially both? Where do you kind of come down there? Definitely both. First of all, I want to say I was actually going to ask you whether or not you considered yourself millennial or Gen Z because uh, I, don't I don't want to be a millennial. Okay. Because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how my brother would answer that question either. Um, He'd say, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, but definitely see um, social media as both a positive and a negative. I think the most positive aspect of it is, like I mentioned earlier, putting power in the hands of the everyday person, I, you're on TikTok, right? Yep. Yep. So I love TikTok. I love seeing so many different perspectives and so many different things go viral. Also hilarious videos. Um, but yeah, I think the rise of social media, the sharing of ideas, um, learning about social movements through social media is great to me. I also like the artistic aspect of, um, curating like an Instagram, um, spread or something like that. Um, I, on the flip side, I mean, the, the most obvious downside of social media is one, it can just make you feel like garbage. We talked mm -hmm. about the other day, I deleted Twitter a few years back because it just made me feel awful. Um, but, and the other thing I would say, um, negative about social media is cancel culture that has emerged. Mm. Um, people being able to dig up old videos and random tweets that people made when they were 14, 15, 16 and absolutely blast them and ruin their whole careers for it. I think it's interesting that pretty much everyone says cancel culture is a problem and they hate it, but it still goes on every single day. I'm really not sure how that aligns or how we combat that. Um, I personally love social media, but it definitely has its dangers. And I feel like I have a personal responsibility to, to myself to keep it in check and know when it's beneficial for me and when it's not, which has obviously been a learning process. Right. And I think we're all learning to live with it. I mean, I think they thought the TV was going to be a brain suck whenever that technology came around. It's just a new technology we kind of have to adapt. And it sounds like you've set up a framework for you to be able to use it productively. You bring up cancel culture, and I do think that's interesting because I see that playing out one of two ways. Either everyone gets canceled and then we can all be like, all right, let's move on, or we learn to forgive each other, which seems like that's – we talked about this the other day too, Tristan, where like when you're, in the, when you're in a car, it's easy to say horrible things to someone next to you because they're kind of in this shell. It's not really a human – like you're distanced from them. And I think on social media, it's even worse. Sometimes you're talking to just an egg avatar on Twitter – some no name who says something horrible to you and you come back at them. Like, I, I think that's the danger is that we are dehumanizing others in a way. Um, but I, the cancel culture thing, I don't know how we get out of that if we don't learn forgiveness, which seems like an age old uh, thing that we've always known. Of course. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest dangers with cancel culture is that it really doesn't allow any room for the person that is canceled to grow. Right. Because if we continually place a person in this box of this is the mistake you made, a lot of the times when we cancel people or when uh, the mass public cancels people, we tend to put a label on them. This person is racist, sexist, homophobic. 
And if we place them in that box and they have that label in their head, this is how society sees me. What's the incentive to change? If, if society already expects that of me, why should I grow from that if that's what I'm going to be labeled forever? And certainly I think that there are some people that should be canceled forever. And I think those people should be locked up in jail for like legitimate crimes that they um, commit. But a lot of what people are getting canceled for today, it's they can do bad things, but we cannot hold people in this space for a long period of time. It just doesn't allow anyone to step out of that and grow and evolve as a human. Right. It's not productive. And uh, redemption stories are some of the best stories in human history. A bad person becoming a great person. It's, it's cool. We're all drawn to that. We, it's exciting. Um, so I want to kind of shift gears, but you kind of touched on this. You're a law student. You're planning on practicing law. How does the court of public opinion kind of compare to the, co the court system? So like we kind of saw this with the George Floyd case, with the Kyle Rittenhouse case, where there's a general public they're, they're trying to be the jury, but they're not the jury. And, you know, in our, in our country, we kind of need a stable court system. We can't have the court of public opinion ruling. I think the founders were pretty clear about that. So how do you think we balance those two polarized aspects going forward in this age of cancel culture? I think it's really hard to balance the two because they're kind of completely separate entities at this point. Um, you know, in the American court system, we have innocent until proven guilty. And a lot of right. times in public media, it can seem a little bit guilty until proven innocent. Um, and I think it can be incredibly frustrating from uh, the public court per se, when they are firmly um, committed to the idea that this person is guilty. Uh, they've seen this play out on the news. They've seen it play out on Twitter. And so then it can be incredibly frustrating when the trials run around and roll around and what they believed to be true in the public ends up not being true in the American system of law. And it's, I used to get really frustrated by it before I was a law student until I realized the standard that we have in the legal system for evidence and for um, absolutely finding someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a really high standard. And a Can really you get into that a little bit? Can you kind of expand on what you mean by the high standard it takes to like convict someone? Sure. So um, the burden or the basically the standard for um, finding someone guilty of a crime is incredibly high. They have to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and that comes through jury trials. And the evidence has to be so heavily in favor of finding someone guilty of that crime that it is fairly obvious to um, the jury to convict that person of a crime because it's pretty high stakes to convict someone of a crime that they didn't commit. So bringing in all this evidence, bringing in witness testimony, all these different perspectives, um, it has to be definitive that this person is guilty. And I think in public, in the public and in media, it's a little bit easier to just um, see the circumstances of it and think, well, I'm pretty sure this guy or girl 
is guilty of this. So I'm really passionate about it because what I believe they did is really horrible. Um, but then you get to the courts and as much as maybe even the jury believes that this person may have committed that crime or even likely did, it's not enough to convict them of that crime. It has to be um, pretty definitive and uh, the standard is high, which can be frustrating, but the alternative is people that didn't commit a crime get convicted. Right. And I think the difference in evidence presented is like, so in a court, when you're on a jury, you have two different camps presenting evidence. They're able to cross check each other. It can take multiple days, weeks. It can take a long time where a 10 minute clip on a news network is not very detailed. It's very narrative oriented. It's one-sided typically. So I think we're setting those people up for bad failures. But the more interesting question here is innocent until proven guilty. Do you think the trade-off is worth it to let some bad people go in order to not convict a good person? Will you repeat the question? So innocent until proven guilty, like you said, it takes a lot to convict someone, right? Mm -hmm. So that means that you'd think that maybe some people who did commit the crime could get off with it. Like, I think people would think OJ is an, like a obvious one. It, it, I don't know. You know, there are people who have committed crimes who've gotten away with it, for sure. But this standard tries to keep you from putting innocent people away. Like, for me, I think that's worth it. Innocent to proven guilty. I think that's a revolutionary idea in mankind. Like, I, I think that I'd rather have a few more bad guys out on the street than a, a, like a one good person suffering a horrible fate because our system condemned them to something they didn't deserve. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm following, definitely. I think we can let um, a few bad guys go if that means that we are not locking someone up that didn't deserve it. And you hear horrible stories about that of people um, being convicted of crimes and having to sit in a prison cell for potentially decades, horribly their entire lives. I can't imagine that kind of pain inflicting on someone. And the reality is the American court system and probably every other court system ever is really, really imperfect. And um, the fact that some people um, slip through the cracks and get convicted of crimes potentially if we didn't stick to this strict interpretation of innocent until proven guilty, that is significantly more um, of a risk in my mind than it is to let, say, OJ walk the streets. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and I, I think that brings up another interesting question that I've thought about. So we both worked in Congress. We've seen where laws get made. We've seen the people, the staffers, the congressmen, how they interact, how that whole system set up. Has being in law school changed your opinion on Congress at all? I think it has. And I think just recent times have also changed my opinion massively on it. I just don't think that a lot of stuff is getting done. Um, I also really admired specifically in my office, on the other hand, our legislative counsel, who was a wonderful man that had gone through law school. He was incredibly intelligent and obviously advised the congressman I was working for on a ton of different issues. So I definitely see the value in great legally trained um, individuals being on Capitol Hill. I think it would kind of 
be a potential disaster without the inside of those individuals. Um, but it's also just exhausting. I mean, we were talking about the other day, keeping up with politics nowadays. I've severely withdrawn from following it the way that I used to. Um, but yeah, I think in some ways it has changed my perspective on Congress. Interesting. Yeah, my dad calls it political fatigue. He doesn't um, want to hear anything about it. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, I do think there are great people in Congress. I, I think that there are a lot of people who are trying to do bad things or good things. And I think that it gets vilified a lot and it's set up for gridlock. So like mm -hmm. the expectation isn't great. Um, so as a law student, again, you're kind of, I mean, government's an important thing. I see the balance of the three branches. I'm speaking solely federally here, getting a little out of whack. And that kind of stems from Congress not doing much and the executive branch keeps growing. I think over a million people in America are employed by the federal executive branch, be it the agencies, mm -hmm. the DOD, other areas. How do you think we could rectify, is there a way to rectify that imbalance? Is it just get Congress to get along more, to work together, compromise? Because I don't think we want one branch to be more powerful than the others. Definitely. I honestly have no idea how we get <laughs> Congress to work together. I think it's interesting to see how it's going to play out if we're going to forever be as divided as we are today, or if there's going to be this eventual kind of reunification of the way that Congress used to be, where you had people um, reaching across the aisle and committing to similar ideals and similar end goals um, in order to achieve something. And I think um, with the rise of a 24 hour news cycle and social media, I think a lot of Congress people feel really compelled to act a certain way or say certain things that um, might be a little bit more inflammatory than if they didn't have a camera or a social media platform following them at all times. But I have no idea how it's going to play out in the future. And even now I'm a little bit concerned about the future of the Supreme Court. Yeah, what do you, what do you mean by that? Expand on that. Um, I think we like to believe that the Supreme Court is an apolitical entity, um, <laughs> which is how it was set up to be. But obviously in reality, that is not the case. And I think Right now we have a 6-3 conservative court and it's a little bit scary for me to think about how quickly certain decisions can be turned over potentially. I think about um, Roe v. Wade is being challenged right now and we heard oral arguments for a case brought to the Supreme Court in early December challenging Roe v. Wade and it's and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and it's honestly not looking too good. And that's a little bit scary to me to know that maybe the Supreme Court and just the federal government in general is not as stable as we would like to believe it is. If Roe v. Wade is reversed and uh, decisions are play out differently, that can have huge impacts on people across the nation. And it's a little bit nerve wracking for me to know that that can, that kind of swift change can happen because a court that is supposed to be apolitical is not apolitical. And 
how will that continue to change when we have new presidents appointing um, justices on yeah. work? Well, I think to be politically fair, I mean, I think a large chunk of the 20th century, it was the exact opposite of that. So mm -hmm. I think the, the left was in control for a long time. And so it, it kind of switches. The apolitical thing, I think I find fascinating because like the firm I work for is supposed to be apolitical, but you don't find people without political opinions. Like it's your First Amendment right. And we think of these corporations, organizations, courts, bureaucracies, anything as one unit, but really it's a composition of individuals and individuals have political views. You're in America, that's you're right. You're allowed to have that. So I think that's a hard thing to disentangle completely. Um, I think judicial review is an interesting point. I've heard some legal scholars talk about how they think the Supreme Court has too much power. I don't know if do you have an opinion on that, on them um, being able to decide what's constitutional and what's not. Man, that's a big question, but I, I personally don't think uh, they have too much power and in regards to judicial review and um, stare decisis, which in legal terms is just the concept of using past precedent to decide current legal cases. I suppose that's what scares me the most is maybe steer, like going too far away from stare decisis, regardless of what side of the aisle, as you mentioned, 20th century was more liberal than it is now. It's, it's scary to me that these precedents may be able to be overturned um, in future years based on who is sitting on the court. Yeah, and I think it's hilarious because you see that in Congress too, where like the Republicans or the Democrats will use the nuclear option and they're like, the minority will freak out and then power will shift and then the majority will use that same. They're, when they're in power, they want to expand power. When they're not in power, they want to diminish power. But it's like, you, do you not have any foresight to think ahead that, you know, like we've gone through Republican, then Democrat, Republican, that we've had these switches throughout history. And it's like, they don't think it's, it's the short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. And I wonder if you have an opinion on uh, kind of term limits, how do we shift that? Because I, I really do think that it's easy for an incumbent to do things for the short-term gain of them gaining reelection or gaining votes now. And then the next guy just has to wear the decision, the consequences of the decisions they made. Do you think term limits would fix that? Um, I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. I think they could, but I just think the nature of the American voter in, in some ways, um, political flip-flopping works for a lot of um, politicians. And so I think until American voters kind of change the way that they're placing their vote, politicians are going to continue acting the way they do, even if it's not admirable, which in a lot of cases it isn't. Yeah, that, it's the lack of responsibility that was kind of shocking to me. And so I'm, I'm reading the rise and fall of the Third Reich right now. Mm. And I don't want to ever give Hitler credit. You know, like Hitler was a horrible guy. I, I don't even need to say that, but I just want to make that clear. Hitler was a bad dude. But his critique of Western republics where the bureaucracy, the politicians never took responsibility. I think he's right on that. There, so his, his pitch was basically like, give me more power. I'll take on all the responsibility. Anything bad that happens, you can blame me. We don't have politicians that really believe that. And I'm, again, I'm not saying I want a Hitler. Like as clear as I can be on that, Hitler's a horrible dude. But the, 
the lack of personal responsibility and just shifting blame, I think that trickles down to people throughout society where we're depending on the government. It kind of creates this paternalistic relationship where, I mean, we see it now. My healthcare is dependent on you. It's not my decisions. It's you. And it's, it's scary to me as someone who holds freedom as a super high value to see people shift their responsibilities to the government. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, I mean, it definitely does. I think um, I'm on a little bit of a different leaning than you are on this particular topic. Um, But that was the first time I had actually heard the concept you were talking about of Hitler taking complete responsibility for um, the actions of what? The the nation? Of, Of the entire nation. Yeah, which is an insane thing. He said that I am the party. I am Germany. And he, but obviously he was a liar. It didn't come true. But I can see how that could be an appealing thing to someone who's like I'm, I'm, I'm the hyperinflation of the, the Weimar Republic, the horrible thing mm-hmm. that the German people have went through after World War One, to be like, OK, at least someone with a spine will come up and try to fix things. And if they don't, they'll take the blame. It doesn't fall on me. I can see how that's somewhat appealing. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I think he was an absolute monster. But the reality of it is he could not have carried out anything he did, such as the systematic murder of 6 million Jews without a lot of other people beneath him being willing to carry out these actions. You think about people driving the trains to Auschwitz. Those trains didn't drive themselves. There were conductors that knew what was happening. Um, And so I think in some ways, him taking all the responsibility for it takes the responsibility off of other people Interesting. Um, and they should feel responsibility. I mean, a lot of decent people did really, really horrible things um, during that time period. And if they have someone to point the finger at, you know, how, how much of a risk is there? Yeah, no, I think that's a hundred percent right. I think the, the road to hell is decided by every individual, you know, same mm-hmm. with authoritarianism. So, so how do you think, so put, I guess, imagine we were in the 19, early 1930s, Weimar Republic as it's collapsing, we're dealing with hyperinflation, it's hard to feed our family. How was it, did it take a value structure, something, what would keep people from happening, that happening again? What would, what would help stop Nazi Germany if you were in that time? What do you think they needed? I have absolutely no idea. And I think <laughs> about this question all the time, what possibly could have stopped it. And I think that's terrifying to think about in the sense of like, what if this happens again? And people think that that's impossible. That can never happen again, but it's happened before. What if it does happen again? And I think as much as I believe that people should have stood up and said something, the average person, it was also a terrifying time to be in Germany for the average person, you know, if you were mentioning having a hard time putting food on the table for your kids, what if you're being threatened by your government that if you, you know, don't turn in your Jewish neighbors, they're going to kill you in the process. I think it was just a horrible, terrible regime that I don't know how it's a big question what has been stopped in the 30s. Yeah, no, I think I think it's scary. And I think that leads into a good next topic, which is individualism versus collectivism. So I think 
a lot of like so totalitarianism in general in the 20th century so whether that's fascism like the soviet republic uh with like communism socialism how how do you see a healthy society balance individualism and collectivism sure so i think um the two are a lot uh, more related and can be both exist at the same time than a lot of people would like to believe. I think we talked about recently that people don't like to see the nuance in the universe. They like mm -hmm. to see one or the other. And I think there's a lot of value in both of them. And I think it's in a lot of ways, the government's responsibility to kind of weigh what matters in individualism and collectivism. Um, I'm all for individualism, personal liberties, I think generally people should be able to do whatever they want up to the point that those people's decisions start affecting other people. That line is drawn differently for a lot of different people. Um, and I maybe have the tendency to lean more towards collectivism than perhaps a lot of individualist focused Americans do. Um, but I see great value in both of them. And spending time in Europe. Um, I lived and studied in France for a while. The, I mean, the cultural differences, the political differences, the evidence of the collectivism in that country is everywhere. I mean, it's in everyday life ingrained in how I lived there. Um, but yeah, to repeat kind of my main point about I believe individualism all the way up until it starts affecting other people. Interesting. Yeah. It makes me think of that line. I don't know who said it, but it was, I have the right to swing my fist in the air until where your nose begins. So mm. I can do what I want until I'm uh, impacting you. Uh, I do think we are a more, we, as a country, we skew more individualistic. Like even as a kid, I remember going to Hibachi for the first time and sitting with other people at the table. I was like, this is weird. Like I'm, I'm normally used to just my family and my friends. Why do I have to sit with these strangers? Like that was kind mm -hmm. of uncomfortable for me where in other cultures that might be a very normal thing. Um, in the, in the, my last episode on this podcast, Grady and I talked about an idea, which was you're a, a communist with your family and friends. You're a Democrat locally, you're a Republican statewide, and you're a libertarian federally. And that basically his idea, the guy who came up with this, it wasn't me or Grady, was that you're localizing, you're, you're collectivizing the local, if that makes any sense. So like, uh -huh. why should my tax dollars go to the federal government to build a bridge in New York whenever I'm never going to go to New York? Why can't they go to the person down the street? And I think you and I talked about this the other day too, maybe, where it's like, I want to, I don't want to have to give tax dollars somewhere to give to a homeless person because I lose the personal connection. I wanna be able to go find somebody and help them out. We can grow together. I think we're, we've lost kind of this communal sense that builds collectivism and allows collectivism to thrive. Does any of that ideas uh, resonate with you or do you, take, do you think that those, do you disagree with those ideas? Yeah, I think it's a super interesting concept and I would love to think uh, more about the concept that you talked about with Grady, is that right? Yes, yeah. Um, but thinking about homelessness in particular and tax dollars. Um, yeah, and you've, you've worked with the homeless for a nonprofit. I Austin. have, yeah. And from, I definitely sympathize with the idea of feeling more interconnected in the way that I'm spending my money in 
hopefully um, being able to have a more close-knit relationship with how I'm choosing to be a humanitarian. But the reality is that a lot of people aren't very humanitarian focused and there has to be, be a way that we are able to protect individuals such as people experiencing homelessness um, that I just don't know can happen on a really narrow level like that. I think at a certain point, um, which probably obviously is a very different point for me than it is a lot of other people. I think the federal government has to step up or the state government has to step up and protect these individuals because to a, to a certain point, it is harming their citizens and they have to um, step in and protect them. So you're coming from the, the point someone has to do it and it's the government's civic duty to protect their people. Is that kind of a good summation of what you're saying? Definitely. And I think maybe in an ideal world, you know, we're all looking out for each other and we can completely in the private sector have everyone's backs. But I just don't personally think that's the reality. And that, that brings up another interesting divide. So one, I think the, the decline of the church is an interesting factor there where typically mm -hmm. that is a communal thing. But you don't see homelessness as much in rural areas. You see it in super dense urban areas with a lot of people. And it's like, I think with remote work, we're actually seeing a spreading out of people a little more. People are moving out of New York, which is super congested, to Southern states, which might be a little bigger. People are able to work remote so you can go live on your farm or your ranch, like on your land where you have a beautiful place to look out at, where you can see. And I think that speaks to a larger divide in the nation. Like, so like when you look at voting uh, patterns for like a presidential election by county, it's a big red sea with a lot of blue dots. And so like, mm -hmm. I think there's a really interesting divide there with like, so like I've spent time camping in nature and it's like, you get to a point where the people aren't the enemy. The nature is the enemy. Like a bear could kill me. I could fall off a waterfall. I, I, I can't get to the hospital. You need people where if you're in a city, like, especially in like a lower income crime ridden area, people are the danger. You're like, I, I could get robbed. I could get jumped. I could get, so I think there's like a fundamental difference there with how people kind of experience the world. Do you, do you resonate with that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think um, the spread we're kind of seeing out into rural areas um, in the age of COVID is interesting. I think from the homelessness perspective, I mean, seeing less people in, or in rural areas, sorry, is... Um, really credited to the fact that people don't want to see homelessness in their backyard, so to speak, um, because so it's you mean like pretty. suburban, it's like suburban areas, you mean? Sure. Um, and it's uncomfortable. Homelessness is not pretty to look at. So I think Absolutely. people are able to live more easily in cities, but tracing back to the people are the enemy. I mean, people experiencing homelessness are having to fight extremely difficult circumstances every single day of their lives. And um, I'm thankful that I've never had to experience it, but I have seen it with my own eyes and it's horrendous. I mean, especially in Austin, Texas, oh, right yeah. now, which is where I lived for the past four years of my life up until I moved to Nashville um, for law school. The homelessness crisis there is horrible i mean it could be a whole podcast in and of itself Nash nashville's worse than austin 
No, Austin. Okay. I think I don't know the statistics on it. Actually, I was way more ingrained in the fight against homelessness in Austin than I am in Nashville. But I mean, even just walking around campus in Austin, I feel like I saw a lot more homelessness than I do currently in Nashville. Okay. Yeah. And I think Austin's known kind of like Austin, LA, they're kind of known as like, that's where you see homeless camps or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like with your experience on the front lines and like actually working with these people, what do you think the big driver is causing homelessness? Is it, is it drugs? Is it mental illness? Is it poverty generally? What what do you think is causing it? Uh, I think all of the above, certainly. Um, I think a lot of it boils down to a lack of resource, lack of resources and generational poverty and um, this cycle of perhaps seeing family members struggle and struggle perhaps with addiction or struggle with homelessness themselves. Um, I think it's really, really incredibly hard to break that cycle. I think Austin is doing a lot of really cool things to provide resources for individuals experiencing homelessness, which is exciting to see because I hear a lot that, um, you know, people experiencing homelessness, they, they don't want, they just want to stay where they are. They don't want to improve their situation for whatever reason, drugs, alcohol, because they choose to be homeless, whatever. But there is a community in Austin called Community First Village. Um, It's by an organization called Mobile Oves and Fishes, and it's entirely set up right outside the city limits of Austin to help people transition out of homelessness. And it is really successful. They have um, access to uh, therapists and people to help um, individuals that struggle with things like addiction or mental health problems. They also really give them a sense of autonomy. There's opportunities for jobs there within the community. There's bus systems that can bus people to jobs in the city and people are expected to pay a certain amount of rent. I mean, they're expected to kind of manage their money and um, learn to hopefully transition them out of homelessness and on into the future. So I think it's a, it's a fight that we can win in a lot of ways. I mean, there will always be people experiencing homelessness on this earth, but I think that model is really interesting. And I would love to see more cities um, kind of take that up and continue to implement it. That's great. Yeah. Hope, hope is awesome. So like, that's, that's an exciting thing to hear that there's something that's actually working because uh, like all you see is the negative side generally, Mm -hmm. which is just look how disgusting this is, human feces, uh, syringes on the ground. Like, that's not a place you want to bring a family, anything like that. It's scary, you know, like, and it's horrible to think that people have to live in those conditions. And you'd think in the wealthiest nation on earth, we could, we could do something about it. So it's cool that people like you are willing to spend your time and resources dedicated to help solving that problem. Um, I think addressing the root, like, I think it's great to rehab people, but addressing the root cause is really important too. And I think a lot of that is kind of like, I think I've heard it called the education to prison pipeline, like the school Mm. to prison pipeline, where it's like there's public schools that are just horribly underfunded. They don't teach you anything useful. They don't teach you much at all. And then you are completely dependent. Like it's a dependent, you become a dependent human. Obviously it's hard to live on your own when you are a dependent individual. Some of these people didn't have a great family to like 
weren't as lucky as someone like you or me where we were kind of trained how to become independent adults. Um, and then I think about the amount of money we spend on prisoners. This was years ago, but the, the number was $96,000 a year was spent on prisons, on prisoners individually. Um, so it's kind of like, there's a rehab opportunity there where it's like, if someone's going to jail for something horrible versus someone who's had a rough life has just been on the streets their entire life, you'd think we could reallocate funds to someone with more potential. And I don't know how you evaluate what potential is, but in general, I think everyone on any side of the aisle wants more and more individuals contributing to society rather than draining society as a net detractor. Um, do you have any opinions on kind of the prison industrial complex education as a whole? I know those are two different paths we can go, mm -hmm. whichever one's more interesting to you. I think education is the route to solving a lot of the problems that we face today. I think it really is not, it's talked about all the time, but I feel like we need to talk about it more. If we give people access to a really solid education, there is statistics and evidence that suggests that as you increase the level of, or the quality of education that someone is receiving, their quality of life increases as well. And I think, um, like you're talking about with the prison pipeline, I think it would be really interesting to see if we were able to elevate a lot of these low income areas, these public schools that simply don't have the funding um, to serve their students in a lot of the ways that you and I were in the awesome school district that we grew up in. Um, but I think time and time again, we see evidence that education is really going to solve a lot of these problems. And I think we're failing as a nation to serve a lot of communities that really could benefit from this. Yeah, and I think it's better for all of us. And I think the issue with education that I always come to is like, there's, there's this attitude amongst some people that it's like the rich kid attitude. It's like, oh, there's a problem. Let's just throw more money at it. Let's just, you know, like just, and money does help. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, let's rethink what education is. And I've heard education, like the education we have now, it hasn't changed much since like the early 1900s. It's a factory. It's a let's build obedient individuals that can work in a factory and follow directions thing. We operate on a bell. You have to be in your class. If you're even one minute late, you're going to go to the office. It's like you go to your manager. It's it just feels like you're being like we're not we're not building individuals. We're building cogs. And even in our like we had a very well funded, great teachers. I think great teachers are the one thing that made my experience in school a little bit better. I was just not meant for school. I think I'm very learning disabled, but um, I think that there's an opportunity to rethink how we do school. Um, and like even college, it's like, why do I need to go to all these courses and pay these tens of thousands of dollars? You and I talked about the other day, YouTube University. There are MIT lectures for free on YouTube, Harvard lectures for mm -hmm. free on YouTube. I can get this education for free. Like, I don't, I don't even understand how universities can compete anymore. I guess it's just the diploma and kind of the tradition and everyone following what we've done. But I, do you have any ideas of how we can reshape education, like a priori from a first principles way of looking at it? I think 
one kind of avenue maybe to think about is standardized testing. And I was actually having a conversation with my Uber driver a couple nights ago because he was a former teacher in Dallas ISD. And he had mentioned standardized testing when I got in the car. I always feel like I get into these conversations with <laughs> Uber drivers and dentists and whoever. And he was saying how frustrating it was. He was a math teacher that, you know, financial literacy isn't on the star test or whatever. So there's really no room for him in his curriculum to teach kids about financial literacy. And then you think about um, kids in impoverished communities. What if they did have access to those, that level of um, education, really practical, useful things such as financial literacy. Um, I, I think standardized testing certainly has its place and there's a lot of benefits to it. But I think it would be interesting to see if we could reshape curriculum to not always fit standardized testing. We also recently had the Texas legislature pass a law that took out a lot of really shocking things from required curriculum, some of them being the Emancipation Proclamation, um, the history of white supremacy, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I just can't imagine why we would want to deprive kids of these kinds of education because the government says not to. Um, but I think implementing more useful, practical classes and curriculum like financial management could have huge benefits. How we get there, I think it would take an entire restructuring of the entire American education system. Maybe we look at standardized testing for that. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with the legislation you referenced, but I do think there's opportunities. Like, I, I don't know. I think about drug dealers a lot. And I think like drug dealers are entrepreneurs. Like those are people who saw a need and they're supplying for that need. Like those are smart individuals who have ambition and potential. Like is, if they're just doing something that was like productive, I guess, not destroying their community. So it's like, if we can give these people individual agency, instead of telling them to memorize Pythagorean theorem or super unuseful like tools, like I got nothing wrong with Pythagore Pythagorean's theorem, whatever. Like I, I know the area of a, of a triangle, whatever, but learning why instead of learning how and I think that that's the easiest way I can frame that it's like why do I need to know this how, why why is long-term thinking important versus short-term thinking like it, in teaching people how to learn like mm -hmm. we have the internet now you have a all of human knowledge online at your fingertips all you need to do is teach someone how to learn and get them excited about learning like like we talked about history both of us really love history we've probably both had great history teachers in the past a lot of people hate history because their teachers were not passionate about it. They're like, here's a timeline. The Mayflower was in 1620. And then like, I get it. That's boring. But if you like movies, you like history because it's just stories on any subject ever. Like you like dancing. Okay. There's a history of dance. You like root beer. There's a history of root beer. Like anything, you can just get so excited and passionate about it. And I think that, and I don't blame the teachers. Like, obviously there are some bad teachers, but I think that they're they're underpaid, maligned incentives. I think unions are a big problem because I think that a lot of the money goes to them rather than the focus being on the kids. I think the bureaucracy and the administrations are growing out of control, like where a lot of money is being funded to them rather 
it should be all about the teacher student relationship. And I think there's a huge opportunity there to like, like I said, it's not all about money. Money does help, but teaching people how to think and why it's important to think rather than just here's the standard curriculum. And like you said, the standardized testing, if it's not on there, they're not going to teach it to you. So what's the point? I do think there's a benefit to standardized testing though, because I think you can identify talent young like a lot of grades are about and you and I might differ on this because you probably had a way better GPA than me um, where it's it's all about compliance how well can you follow directions how well can you meet deadlines and that's important skills like I'm not degrading that at all but standardized tests is it's it's what you know it's how how can you apply the knowledge you know and I I don't want to see that taken away I know a lot of colleges have removed that from their required um like whatever to get into college i think that standardized testing that was a saving grace for me i had a horrible gpa but i did well on the standardized test like okay this kid has some potential um sorry i was kind of rambling there but was there anything in there that kind of caught your attention or was interesting to you yeah i totally agree that standardized testing shouldn't be completely done away with i think there's definitely um benefits to it not only in identifying talent but also in identifying the gaps that may be present. I think, however, that there needs to be more free reign in the curriculum to where it's not completely focused on standardized testing. I feel like there needs to be more of a balance between the two. Definitely continue to have standardized testing at the end of the year or for college admissions, but also allow the room and the time to go off on a different path. If a 16 year old in their English class is really interested in a particular subject and it sparks a conversation within the classroom. If that's not on the standardized test, maybe they re- the teacher has to redirect the conversation back to whatever thematic elements are in Pride and Prejudice. But I think we should be able to follow those rabbit trails and be able to get kids and young adults excited about their education. I think potentially giving more leeway And the education system with obviously a lot of guidance could potentially be very beneficial. I think there's also a huge statistical difference in the way that um, people in higher income areas or white kids perform on the SAT and the ACT. Um, And I think about PSAT team. Do you know what that was at Farmer High School? Because like if you got a certain grade on the PSAT, you'd get extra like prep or something for the yes. next. Yeah. Yes. And we poured, I mean, Flower High School pours a lot of money and resources into that PSAT team to try to raise kids PSAT and their SAT scores. But at the same time, the people that were getting lower grades or weren't scoring as well, weren't getting that focused attention when right. they probably needed to, but it looks better. For it's the incentive. It, exactly. It looks better for Flowerman High School and no shade to Flowerman High School. I think it's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful public school, but it looks better for them uh, to have a bunch of merit scholars, I think it's called. Um, so they want to invest resources into that, which is understandable, but it comes at a cost for the kids that probably need it more. Right. It's the incentive structure. And I do I do feel for the administrators and the legislators a little bit because it's very hard to quantify how good of a job a teacher is doing. Like that's mm-hmm. super 
difficult because there, there might have been some teachers who taught me the most who I just hated. So like I, if, if I were to give them a review, it would have been very negative, but they actually did with hindsight play a big role. I do think that standardized testing, I want to differentiate between like in Texas, there's the, for public schools, which is what we had. There's the tax test whenever I was a kid, then it became the star test, which was mm-hmm. each course. I think the ACT and SAT was more what I was talking about, where it's like to identify talent. It's more general. It's less like there's not as much teaching to the test unless you're in the PSAT team, like you're talking about, where if I do remember correctly, I, I wasn't on the PSAT team, but there was SAT, ACT prep as an additional class you could yes. take. Yes. So there was an opportunity, but maybe it wasn't as like one-on-one or the ratios weren't as good to like help the kids learn. And who knows if they have that in other school districts. Um, but I, I don't see the value in teaching to, to the test, if that makes sense, where it's like, here's how to get a good grade. It should be more like, here's how to learn. And then the test just makes sure that you retain the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do see value in SAT and ACT then. And I yeah. do as well. Yeah. Um, but I also... I think the SAT is a super learnable test. I don't think it's just you show up and get whatever score you get. You can master the SAT. And I had great tutors that pretty much helped me master the SAT when my initial score wasn't all that perfect. And people with higher incomes can pay for their kids to have private tutoring um, and increase their SAT scores. And I think that's a huge problem with college admissions in general. So I, I do see the value in it, but I don't think so much weight should be put into it, especially given the vast amount of circumstances people can I, be. I totally agree. I think it needs to be more holistic uh, because also like there are kids who school is just their life. Like grades was everything. Didn't really have social lives. Didn't get involved in athletics or anything like that. And like, that's their decision, whatever. But I think that you need to be a more well-rounded person. So there should be a, a number of different metrics that higher education, higher education is measuring you on, not just your SAT, not just your GP. Yeah. Trey and I took SAT tutoring together with some sweaty dude who would just burp on us the whole time. It was, <laughs> it was horrible. I did not learn much from that. It was, and our parents just kept making us go. Gosh, um, I have never heard that story before. That's hilarious. Oh, it was me, Blake and Trey. And he just kept burping and st- he would like take off his jacket, just have so much sweat running down his body. <laughs> Smells so bad. But... Wait, Blake was there too. Is Blake one year younger than you? Yeah, he's between oh, you okay. and me. Yeah. I'm sure that was a disaster, the three of Oh, them. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, any, any other topics you want to cover, Tristan? I think we've, we're almost at an hour. This has been a good conversation. Yeah, it definitely has. I'm trying to think. Do you want to talk masculinity versus femininity? Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk. So masculinity versus femininity. So to me, every person has some sort of masculine and feminine element to them. I think you favor one over the other. Generally, Uh, it doesn't have to align with your biological sex, but I think it typically does. And I think that to have a healthy collective, we need a balance between masculinity and femininity um, where I think that femininity is normally compared to nature and masculinity is kind of like implying force on nature. So like, I think the ideal is like the walled garden. I think Jordan Peterson talks about this, where it's like you have the beauty and the kind of chaos and the creativity of nature, but the order and the structure and the protection of the garden that's tended to and has fences and walls around. Um, what, do you, what do you think about masculinity and femininity, Tristan? 
Oh, as my gosh. first female guest on my podcast. Thank you. Yes, thanks. Um, I think masculinity and femininity are kind of obsolete. I think. Oh, interesting. People that um, claim it doesn't exist are masculinity and femininity of course exists. I think it's very prevalent, but I think we're seeing a huge breakdown in what we define as masculine versus feminine and who can subscribe to masculinity versus femininity. I think we're seeing this a lot in fashion too. I think about um, Lil Nas X, Harry Styles being the first solo male on the cover of Vogue, wearing a dress, wearing nail polish. Um, Miley Cyrus, who is also in this kind of uh, androgynous space of combining masculinity and femininity. I think people should really just be able to do whatever they want. And I think we're moving into a space where they're converging a little bit more than they have in the past. That's not to say that a woman can't embrace her femininity, her traditional idea of femininity, and a man can't embrace his traditional idea of masculinity. I think absolutely, if that's what they want to go for, then for sure. But I think imposing the concept of masculinity and femininity and imposing those expectations on people, I think it will become less and less of a thing because who even decided what masculinity and femininity are in the first place? Who decided that wearing a dress is feminine? It just places unnecessary limitations when I think there probably could be none. Right. No, and I, I agree with that. I think that like Scots wore kilts, which we would consider feminine, but for them, that was a very masculine article of clothing. I think that's more on like the visual superficial level of what I mm-hmm. think of masculinity. Cause I think that, that it's, it's deeper than that. I think that there's like, there are forces of masculinity and forces of femininity. And I, like I was kind of saying at the beginning, like femininity is what life emerges from it's creativity. It's, it can be chaos. It can be dangerous. It's what takes life away. And I think masculinity is order, structure. Uh, so I, I don't see them as necessarily male or female. Like, I don't like the, I do think there's a dichotomy between two opposing forces, like the yin and the yang. Like, I think that's the mm. perfect example, like where there's a little bit of femininity in the overwhelmingly masculine area. And there's a little bit of masculinity in the overwhelmingly feminine, whatever, you know what I was trying to say. But um, I do think there's a balance there that as society, we need to keep. I don't think it matters if certain females are masculine or certain males are feminine. Like, I don't think that doesn't matter. Like, freedom is, again, the most important thing to me. So it's like, if you're being true to who you are, who am I to tell you what to, what to think, what to wear, what to do? But I do think there's like an overarching societal structure. So like, talking about fascism i think that was overly masculine i think that was an overly masculine society it went too far out of whack where it's all about the fist the strong man the 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 punishing things like that where like i guess a commune or like somewhere that has like no rules and kind of free living where the nothing gets done and it's like it can it can, it can skew the other way too like do you think that there's some truth to that or am i way out of touch here No, I think there's definitely some truth to that. I just uh, view it from a completely different perspective, I suppose. I just don't see um, intense fascist regimes regimes as masculine at all. And I don't see... um, Like hippie living? 
a harmonized <laughs> community yeah. um, as feminine. I think that's perhaps limitations we place mentally because it's so ingrained in our society and our culture to have those expectations, um, which maybe in some ways does feed into the fact that if we believe and continue to push masculine and feminine, um, these expectations, then sure, it does exist. Um, so do you think I, there is no dichotomy then? Like, so is it all just one thing? Like, in I guess, what, what is your, is it good and evil? Is it like mm. chaos and order? Like, what is your dichotomy that you see? Like, that's kind of like, like, I don't know. I see everything as like, there's two extremes and we're just trying to meander in the middle. Like that's, we're just trying to balance our way through. And I think masculine and feminine to me is like a very deep, part of society again i don't think it's male and female like and i hear the patriarchy and matriarchy thrown around a lot i think those are less thought out terms but um so like what what is it good and evil i okay so i totally see where you're coming from with the dichotomy of i suppose i just don't think about it in those terms but i think there's kind of this universal energy and i suppose i would chalk it up to there being good and evil, but I don't think they're two separate things. I think that there is some middle ground and not all people are good or evil. Not all evil people uh, don't have any good in them or whatever. So do you I think, think everyone's both? Is everyone good and evil? I or believe capable? So, yes. Okay. That's like the, I mean, the wolf story. Have you heard that? Mm-mm. It's like an old Native American tale where it's like uh, every man has two wolves, two wolves in them uh, fighting. One's good and one's mm. evil. And the kid says, which one wins? And the granddad says, the one you feed. So I, the one that you're giving to. I think that in certain people, one certainly overpowers the other. And I would like to believe for the majority of people that good does overpower evil. But I think that even the most evil people in the entire world, as much as I hate to say it, probably have, I believe they have to have a shred of good in them. That's just how nothing can exist without the other. Good cannot exist without evil. Evil cannot exist without good. And they're constantly um, in a relationship with the other one. Um, and I think we kind of talked about earlier, people don't like to see nuance in things, but I think everything is way more nuanced. And I think there's constantly this universal energy around good and evil positive and negative what you project into the universe um comes back at you in a certain form of energy and spreads to people throughout you so i i suppose from my perspective there's more of a positive energy and a negative energy interesting uh and to, to your point like hitler was great with dogs so like there's some good and we laid out how horrible hitler was earlier so he has a shred of good i guess but didn't he also like murder his dog before he killed himself oh maybe I, i'm not aware of that I, I i haven't got to that part of the book yet <laughs> <laughs> but he was also like i'm pretty sure he was like absolutely obsessed with his wife and he was like yeah a vegetarian so again i think he is a monster 99.999 percent of him was horrible and he was completely consumed by negative energy but i think there are people in his life that probably did see shreds of good in him we have the hindsight of knowing what kind of atrocities he committed and it can feel really easy to chalk him up to this 
comic book character villain in the way that we read about him in history, but he was a person. He probably did have some nice thoughts sometimes. Yeah, it's weird to think about. Um, but that, that's interesting to me. So like, obviously you said you can't have good without evil. You can't have hot without cold. Like there's this weird dichotomy to nature in general, like to existence. So that that's why I'm, I guess I'm kind of pressing you on this point of masculinity and femininity. Like there's something there. There has to be, or else mm-hmm. we wouldn't have talked about it for so long for all of human history. There is a male and a female. Like there's, I agree with you that we don't have to completely become subservient to these ideas, but there's got to be something there, right? I mean, perhaps, but I think gender in general is just an interesting concept. I think society as a whole and forever has just been obsessed with the concept of gender. gender. You know, what if we separated people based on their eye color, our, our expectations for people based on their eye color or their hair color? And obviously there is a racial issue, but I think that for whatever reason, ancestor like our ancestors and continued today have just honed in so much on gender it's such an important factor in our everyday existence as humans but I I don't know that it's inherent at the same time there seems to be patterns across all cultures um dating back to the origins of humanity and civilization so you know maybe there is something to it that um all people seem to find this balance between masculinity and femininity I just I just don't know that I focus so much on the gender of it but right there is something to it and I think the gender is less important like we we talked about the other day I grew up with plenty of kids whose dad was a stay-at-home dad and the mom was like a hustler like your mom badass mm-hmm. like, yeah my, my mom badass like we, yeah. we grew up with a lot of like strong women around and like so and that you I guess you could classify that as masculine I don't think you necessarily have to but it's like I don't think that the gender identities necessarily need to align but it's like maybe in the union of two individuals their femininity and masculinity has to strike some balance I, I just worry about I guess society getting out of whack and I mean like I have to bring it up but like toxic masculinity you hear about it constantly you never hear about toxic femininity and there's like there's two sides to every coin and if you only focus on one side of a coin you're putting yourself at risk of going too far the other way if that makes sense Mm -hmm. um and so i don't know if you have an opinion on that but like i think men can get very demonized women can too but there's like there's got to be a balance. Everything has to have some sort of a balance for us to be harmonized. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, it, are you suggesting that maybe there's a toxic femininity as well as a toxic masculinity? Yeah. And I would argue cancel culture is toxic femininity. Mm, interesting. Ooh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so it's not my idea. I've heard it from others, but it's like, how, how, do, how are men aggressive? Men are aggressive through physical violence women are aggressive through social like ruin like there's some girls you get into a spat with in high school and I've seen it firsthand a million times it's like she's this she's that let's take her down and I would argue cancel culture is a manifestation of toxic femininity where like like I said with Hitler like that was toxic masculinity just murdering everyone in the streets and like doing horrible things so like I think there's a warning there where both are bad toxic anything extremism politics 
Magistan and Wokistan are both dangerous. Like, like there's a reasonable middle somewhere for everything. And like, if we don't realize that the other, like the, the extremes can be dangerous, we're at risk. If we're only focusing on one extreme, we're at, we're at risk of going to the other extreme. And I think that's what I try, was trying to get to there. Yeah, definitely. I just personally don't think we're at as much risk of toxic femininity as we are uh, with toxic masculinity solely because men have controlled society since forever. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if there ever is true gender equality, if, cause now I'm starting, I I'm following what you're saying about the toxic femininity. And I think there for sure is something there. Um, but I still don't think that women have the voice or the power that men carry. And so right now I think in the balance, toxic masculinity significantly, um, outweighs toxic femininity could that balance kind of shift if we see a more gender equal society I don't know that could be a, a really interesting thing that could happen but I think until we get there it's just they're not on even playing fields I feel like the people that are toxically feminine are a super super small minority and toxic masculinity is way more of an issue um to be discussed and with anything there's always going to be extremists in any belief system any ideology whatever that are going to ruin it for everyone else right I guess, I guess what i'm getting at is i think it's a it's just a warning where it's like don't mm -hmm. overcorrect you know, uh, there's a balance that needs to be struck. You still need men. <laughs> like, uh. Yeah. And so it's, it's just like, there's a, there's a balance that needs to be maintained in, in order to find harmony. And like, I, I think that your argument works like well with the race thing too, where it's like mm -hmm. white people are more demonized nowadays, but it's also because they've been in control of the U S for a long time. And so there's something there um, for, I guess, straight white men like me uh but th there's a danger there too like you like you were talking about about cancel culture it's like putting someone into a box if all white people are racist they might start acting more racist in a way and it's like mm -hmm. there there needs to be individual autonomy and like you and i grew up in a very white suburb but like we we didn't grow up in the jim crow era we didn't grow up in the, the horrible time thank god like that would be mm -hmm. horrible so it's I don't know. There needs to be individual autonomy, individual responsibility, and everyone needs to be responsible for their own actions, not necessarily the actions of their group. And I think that goes for Definitely. everyone. Definitely. And I think the concept you bring up of overcorrection is prevalent all throughout history. Society is constantly overcorrecting and then being brought back down to a sort of happy medium. But to me, I suppose this kind of traces back to what we were talking about with the innocent until proven guilty, I'm willing to let some bad men and women walk the streets. I'm willing for society to overcorrect a little in order to push past the barriers and the boundaries that have constantly, consistently been in place over society in hopes that it will- Revert to the mean. Yeah, exactly. So I think that overcorrection is not ideal, but I think it's worth the consequences of it and i think that's a great way to wrap it up where it's like so like you're a progressive there are conservatives i think the goal is if this is the middle and like this is one side this is the other side 
we want to make those swings as minute as possible. Stay mm -hmm. as close to the mean. So like if you're saying we're up here and you want us to work this way and you're okay if we cross it a little bit, let's try to cross it as little as we can. And then it's going to go up and it's like a wave. We just want to stay as close to that center line as possible. And I think that's like you and I talking, like we have very different views in a lot of places. We're very similar. I've known you forever, Tris. I love mm -hmm. you, but it's like, we have disagreements, but I think conversations like this where neither of us is trying to vilify the other one. We're both trying to get at the truth are super productive. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk to me. This is probably the most you and I've really had a super serious conversation one-on-one -on -one without your brother telling us to shut up. Yeah, absolutely. No, <laughs> seriously, it's been such a pleasure. And every time I get to speak to you about these topics, you always have such great insights. And I'm always so appreciative of your patience and your kindness. I really always enjoy our conversations. And now we just happen to record one of them. Yeah, no, this is awesome. And I hope we can we can do it again. Uh, Tristan, do you have anything you want to like bring up any charity or something you want to plug or someone people could follow you if they want to if they're just obsessed with Tristan Cox, and they want to learn more about you? Oh, gosh, no, don't follow me on anything. Uh, <laughs> dangerous territory. I suppose the only thing I'll say, um, I, I find a lot in law school, this is the thought I've been consistently having throughout law school. I would like to believe that myself and every single classmate I have are totally going to change the world. But in reality, that's probably not going to happen. I think the greatest mark we leave on this planet is the way that we speak to one another and the way that we treat one another. So with homelessness, I think uh, it's great to try to completely change the policy. And I think that's necessary, but probably a lot of the biggest impact we're going to have is bringing a meal to someone and sitting down and having a conversation, treating them like a human, making eye contact with them while they're ignored by every other person and passed the entire other day and just travel through life knowing that the biggest impact we have is in our words and our actions and that's something i'm trying to constantly improve on i love that talk the talk and walk the walk that's great thank you everyone See yes ya. thank you